Today's scripture comes from Romans 11, verses 25 through 32. Least you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And it is written, Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Thank you, Debbie. Would you pray with me before we venture into God's word together? Let's pray. Father, it's good to quiet our minds and sit at your feet and listen to your voice. Please speak clearly to us now. Enable me to serve your people really well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The big idea of this passage and this sermon is this. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Rather, seek to understand the mysteries of God. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Instead of doing that, instead of being wise in your own sight, seek to understand the mysteries of God. One very specific mystery that we're going to study this morning. But that's a principle that holds true generally. Being wise in your own eyes and seeking to understand the mysteries of God are antithetical. You can't seek to understand the mysteries of God for very long and remain wise in your own eyes. It doesn't work. You're, you're thinking that you are wise dissolves pretty quickly once you start to really gaze out into the mysteries of God. I, I don't know about you, but I have found that to be absolutely true as we've worked through Romans 1 through 11, specifically Romans 9 through 11. Um, we were, Meredith and I were watching Conan O'Brien this week, which we never do because we don't stay up that late. Um, but we were watching Conan O'Brien, and he had a guest on. I don't remember the actor's name. He was one of the hobbits in Lord of the Rings, but I know you don't watch movies, so that means nothing to you. It's not important. But he had an actor on. The actor was sitting on the couch, and they were talking. And the actor decided to make a comment on the whole big Chick-fil-A uh, controversy and homosexuality. You're not getting another mini-sermon on that this week. But he just made this blanket statement and he called um, the owners of Chick-fil-A, Truett and Dan Cathy, their statement, uh, disgusting bigotry. And then he called Chick-fil-A chicken, disgusting chicken. I don't know which was more ignorant and more offensive. But he just said both with such confidence on a national, you know, a, a national maybe global platform. And, you know, I, I disagree with them on both counts. Um, but I marveled at how confident he was in this assertion. 
that the belief that marriage is between one man, one woman, per God's design, is disgustingly bigotrous, period. He knew it. He was confident in it. Case closed. And I'm thinking, what? How, how would you even know? I mean, you played a hobbit in a movie. Why are you that confident about this assertion? And I just bring that up because it's the most recent example I've seen of the way we humans can become wise in our own sight and just basically think that we are right and that we know and become settled and confident in our own understanding of things. The Bible teaches don't do that. Don't become wise in your own sight. Instead, seek to understand the vast, glorious mysteries of God. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And I have a quote for you because we have to think to do this. And we've had to think pretty hard uh, for all of my sermons for the last like 30 years, it seems like, since we've been in these chapters of Romans. And that's good. And in case you don't believe me, I have a quote from a guy named Al Mohler. Does anybody know who Al Mohler is? Nobody? Okay, one person. He's pretty famous in Christian circles. He's, um, he's the president of a seminary. He's an author. He's like a political commentator. He has his own uh, radio show slash podcast. And he, they call on him to go to CNN to comment on things from a Christian perspective. Pretty established guy. Here's what he has to say about about thinking, about pondering the mysteries of God. He wrote, An essential dimension of Christian discipleship is the life of the mind. And this may well be the most neglected Christian responsibility of our times. God has made us intelligible creatures, and he has given us the stewardship of intellectual faculties that should drive us to think in ways that bring him greatest glory. Maybe that quote itself is uh, stretching your intellectual faculties. Basically what he's saying is, God gave you a brain, and it's an amazing instrument. And he did it for a reason, so that you can use it to bring him great glory by using it to worship him and, and meditate on him and think about him and try to figure him out. And it's an eternity-long process. So, in our Twitter culture of 140 characters or less where we get our information in snippets and headlines where we are constantly uh, in noise with our earbuds in or our radios on or our Netflix going or our tablet here and our laptop there and our big screen over there and our just general busyness in which we really aren't naturally given a lot of time to just think. When's the last time you had just some quiet, uninterrupted, unhurried time to ponder, to consider, to think, to study? Has anybody had any time like that in the last decade? It's hard to come by. We have about 20 minutes here together right now. Um, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to think. We're going to think about a mystery, as this passage says. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery. And before we delve in, we need to know what he means by mystery. This isn't like that old show, Unsolved Mysteries. Did any of you see that? Okay. I was pretty young when that show was in its heyday, and it creeped me out. It was, 
if you remember, the host would come on in like a trench coat. He always looked like he was in a crime scene and it was dark and there was smoke and he had that deep voice and he would describe some really bizarre mystery. And then the whole show would be picking apart this mystery, trying to figure out from the clues what happened, why did this person die this grisly death, or I can't remember what the mysteries were. And the whole point of the show is those mysteries were unsolved, probably never would be solved. That's not the kind of mystery Paul is talking about. When Paul, and in the Bible, they use the word mystery, it's talking about something that we didn't know for a long time, and then God revealed it to us. It's knowledge that can only be attained through God revealing it to you. So it's not something you've got to be a detective and put together with clues. It's something that you didn't know, you didn't have the ability to know, and then God showed it to you. So it was a mystery to you, then he told you the answer to it. Okay? Just so we're on the same page about a mystery? Awesome. So let's, let's um, read back through these verses again uh, with that introduction in mind. And it's really going to be, surprisingly, quite a simple sermon this morning, I think. So let's read through, just take our time reading through the passage together. So Paul, writing to these uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians, two very different types of Christians, says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. You know, he's just, in chapters 9 and 10 and 11, been laying out deep truths that these people have probably never considered. And he doesn't want them to become wise in their own sight and be puffed up with a little bit of biblical knowledge. Instead, he wants them to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, that's a big statement. We've spent so much time talking about that. I'm not really going to unpack all that this morning. Basically, we've read that Israel had been hardened, that God had done the hardening, and that that was his right because he's God. Uh, More giant statements that I can't go into this Sunday because we've spent so much time on them. But Paul clarifies here, the hardening, the the reason Israel isn't all about Jesus right now, because they're hardened, it's partial and it's temporary. Not all of the Jews were hardened, and it's not going to last forever. There's going to be a day when that hardening breaks away and Israel in vast numbers are going to believe in Jesus. And it's going to be huge. That's what we talked about last week. Okay. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. Now that doesn't necessarily mean each and every individual Israelite. The way Paul has used the word all in the previous passages, it just means once this happens, you'll be able to say Israel believes in Jesus. It doesn't mean that every Israelite believes in Jesus, but in general, the Jews are going to recognize Jesus is the Messiah. So as it is written, the deliverer, Jesus, will come from Zion, Israel, and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. It's another way of saying Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. And we talked about how Israel's rejection of Jesus is what opened the door for God to offer Jesus to us Gentiles. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. We talked about that last week, how, or a couple weeks ago, 
The root was holy. The forefathers were chosen by God. So he's not going to abandon his people. So he, election does include Jews. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable or irrevocable. I'm not sure how you pronounce that word. Quick side note here. We asked the question last week, can one lose their salvation? And I just basically said no, but didn't have a ton of time to back that up scripturally. This is a pretty clear scripture to help me back that up. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When he gives them, he gives them and they stick. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Another Paul confusing sentence, but we've covered that too. Israel rejected Jesus and opened the door for God to give Jesus to the Gentiles so that the Jews would see the Gentiles and, and everything that they had in Jesus and become jealous and thus also receive mercy through Jesus. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. That word consigned, your Bibles may say, uh, I don't know what your translations say, but it means like shut or enclosed. It's like we all were born and we climbed into this box called disobedience and God said, all right, that's where you want to be. And he closed the lid on us so that he could later show mercy. Okay, thanks for walking with me through the passage there. We don't want to be wise in our own sight. Instead, we want to apply our minds to the mysteries of God, specifically this morning, this mystery of how he is creating a people of mercy, a people dependent upon his mercy, characterized by his mercy. I don't know what you think of when you think of the word mercy. It means, in the original language, probably what you think. It has the idea of pity. I thought it would be helpful to contrast the biblical notion of mercy with some other ideas to help us get a clear idea on what it means. Um, It's the opposite of merit. You know, you've heard of merit-based scholarships, things like that. We operate per merit, mainly. If you're in school and you're hoping to get scholarships, you know, you need merit. You need grades and you need to show that you're a good guy, a good gal. You're going to do well. Uh, When you're applying to colleges, your merit is your basis. Here's my transcripts. I I made these grades. Here's my essays. This is what I'm capable of doing. Please let me in. I'm good enough. That's merit. Um, When you're applying for a job and the interview process and the application, you're trying to prove your merit. I'm a good guy. I'm a good gal. Please let me in. I'm worthy of it. Okay? Our whole human system basically operates by merit. God's system operates by mercy. So it's not that we are worthy of it. It's that we are unworthy of it, and it gives it to us anyway. That's mercy. So there is no application process to be a Christian. You do not have to become worthy enough to be a Christian. I've had people who have hesitated to be baptized because they thought, I'm not going to live up to this. Well, of course you're not. That's the whole point. God doesn't make us live up to it. He gives it to us. That's mercy. So mercy is not merit. Mercy is also 
uh, it's not grace. Do you know the difference between mercy and grace? Have you ever thought about it? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. So everybody's been watching the Olympics. Let's just say there's some Olympic race. One of the racers or runners is injured, and so she goes really slow. She goes so slow that it basically disqualifies her from even being in the race, much less winning the race. Okay, so you've seen like those beautiful moments in the Special Olympics and things where the other runners will come back and they'll go with the person across the finish line. See, that's, it's mercy to allow them to cross the finish line. Grace would be allowing them to win the race. I don't know if that translated or not. We deserve death because of our sins. God is merciful, so he doesn't kill us. And he's gracious in that he gives us life and all these other things that we don't deserve. So mercy is not merit, it's not grace. Um, And one quick third one, it's also not neglect. God disciplines his sons. So just because he's merciful doesn't mean he's going to let you get away with your sin. He loves you too much for that. Uh, Hebrews 12 talks about how he disciplines his sons. So we've been working through this really difficult passage in um, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And it's been difficult for me as a preacher. Is my voice crazy loud to you guys, or is it just crazy loud to me? Crazy loud to you, Kevin? How's it? Is it okay for Kevin? Um, it's been a difficult trek, and this is our last really difficult sermon in the book of Romans. Next week's is, you can read ahead and see, it's just this big worship bomb that's going to explode at the end of all of this. And there's a reason I think that it's been difficult. And I've I've got another quote I want to read to you that illustrates it. It says, there's an age-old difference between the way natural man sees the problem of his relation to God and the way the Bible sees the problem of man's relation to God. Man-centered humans are amazed that God would withhold life and joy from any of his creatures. God-centered Bible is amazed that God should withhold judgment from sinners. Now, one of the implications of this for preaching is that preachers who take their cue from the Bible and not from the world will always be wrestling with spiritual realities that many of their hearers do not even know exist or think essential. I've heard people say, I've heard the gospel a billion times. I don't need to hear it again. I'm already a Christian. But see, being in these passages, I know that this is all we have. And disentangling us from any idea that we can work to gain our salvation is one of my primary tasks as your pastor. And I know, too, that many of you aren't thinking about this during the week. You've got other more pressing things on your minds. So I found that quote, and I felt like it's, it reflected with the truth in this passage and it also kind of explained myself a little bit. I know that you're not thinking about this all week, all the time. But let me submit to you that you should be. Your relationship with God through Jesus is the most important fact of your life. Okay. So applying our minds to this mystery of how God and why God is creating a people of mercy and not a people of merit. Let's just look real quick at what he's done to do this. Um, He sent a deliverer to banish ungodliness from Jacob and make a a sin-removing covenant. We get that in verses, starting in verse 26. 
And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's given irrevocable gifts and calling in verse 29. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He's so merciful, he doesn't just offer it. He gives it to you in such a way that you can't shake loose of it. Even though we're prone to wonder. Wander, not wonder. He's used Israel and the Gentiles to lure each other into this relationship of mercy. That's what our minds have been bending to understand all these past weeks. It says, as regards the gospel, Israelites are enemies of God for your sake, Gentiles. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience... So they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. It's very confusing. If you don't understand it all, that's okay. Just understand this. God is doing these huge, epic things with these two giant people groups in order that his ministry would bounce back and forth between the two of them and draw people in to a relationship with him through mercy. Not merit. Lastly, he has even used our human disobedience to draw us into a relationship of mercy. That last verse, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. He's allowed us to get into our disobedience box and he's he's given us what we've wanted to disobey him so that, not so he could judge us, but so that he could bring us into him through a relationship of mercy. Now, this has many, many huge implications for your life, for the people you know. And I'll just give you three quick ones. First, he wants you to receive mercy through Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may feel like you don't deserve mercy, Some of you may be harboring secrets and sins and failures and you don't think you deserve it. That's the whole point. You don't. But God is so good. He wants you to receive it through Jesus Christ. That was the whole point of that passage I read at the beginning of the service in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Excuse me, I'm losing my voice. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And it goes on and on and on about all these riches that he wants to pour out onto you. Riches like you've never even imagined that you wanted. You know, you turn on the TV and you hear some of these preachers and they try to tell you how good God wants your life to be. But they limit it to material blessing. And they say you have your best life now. And they miss the reality of it, the substance of it. 
God wants to pour blessings and richness out into your life like you have never even dreamed that you even wanted. Bigger than you even thought you wanted. Not because you've earned it, but because he's merciful. So receive mercy from God in Jesus. Let this mercy motivate you to worship. Any of you ever feel dry and dull and dead in worship? Let's just use our singing, even though that's not the full sense of what it means. When you're singing here, do any of you ever just feel like, let's just get to Matt. He's the exciting part. It's a lot of laughter. Maybe you're dry in worship and you're not consumed with worship during the week because you've not thought deeply about this. C.J. Mahaney said, and it's on the back of your little insert in your bulletin, it's not mysterious. Those who feel deeply about the gospel are those who think deeply about the gospel. And we have worked so hard to get to where we are in Romans. This was an ambitious project. I mean, I knew it was. Meredith and I were talking about last week. We're like, I don't know if they can hang in much longer in all these difficult passages through these chapters of Romans. But what's been happening, if you've been applying yourself to this, if you've been applying your mind to this, it's like you've been loaded into a slingshot. And each week, it gets pulled back a little bit more. It's hard. It's hard to think through these things. The tension gets greater and greater and greater. Chapter 9 If the Israelites are God's chosen people, then why aren't they believing in Jesus? Never thought about that before. Got to figure that out. Is God incompetent or mean? Um, What is it? Is God in control of people who are saved? Does that mean that he is uh, unjust because some people aren't saved? More difficult thinking that has to be done. Things that you probably don't think about every day. He just goes on and on and on. And then... Next week, look at verse 33. God lets go of this thing, and we fly into just worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You can't say things like that with any heart behind it if you have not gone through the thought process that leads to the conclusion. And it's God's mercy that releases the slingshot and sends us into worship. You guys know Romans chapter 12. You've heard a lot out of Romans 12. Much more than you've heard out of the chapters we've been studying the very first verse, Romans 12, 1, many of you probably memorized if you went to Sunday school. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Have any of you heard that verse before? Present your, and then further on, don't be conformed to the image of this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've heard that. But I'll bet most of you have heard that without all the hard work that led Paul to that through these preceding chapters. 
Now that we've done it, these verses pack a punch like they never had before for me. Now I'm starting to understand the mercies of God. They are awesome. So yeah, it only makes sense that I I would present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. It used to feel like a command, something I didn't want to do. Now it's a no-brainer, of course. Let the mercy of God propel you into worship. Think about it. Think deeply about it. And lastly, offer this mercy to others. Offer this mercy that we receive through Jesus to other people. In the, in the Beatitudes, when Jesus was teaching, let me read it, make sure I read it correctly, in Matt, Matthew 5, 7, Matt 5, 7. We're close. Old Matt Dog wrote, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I don't think unmerciful people have received mercy from God through Jesus. I think once you receive it, you give it. And I want to encourage you to receive it and give it. There's another verse I want to read to you from James. I can never find James in a pinch when there's a bunch of people looking at me. I know it's after Hebrews. James 2.13. For Listen to this verse. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if we're unmerciful to other people, it proves that we have not received mercy from God. And judgment without mercy will come to us. You know, Jesus, back in Matthew, or Matt, he was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, sort of the the worst people, the most sinful people, people religious folks didn't, hang around and the religious folks said why are you hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and Jesus said kind of curtly go learn what this means I desire mercy not sacrifice he just shoes them away and says go think about this for a second God doesn't desire all your religious stuff all your sacrifices all your religious activities he desires mercy it's very core and central to what it means to be a Christian to stand only on mercy to relate to God. And since we've received such rich mercy to be able to dispense that to other people. So may God instruct us, show us, enable us the ways in which we need to receive this mercy, worship in light of this mercy, and offer this mercy to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are merciful and gracious. Father, help the uh, truth of this scripture to live on in our hearts as we leave here, to do its molding work on our lives. Those in this room who have not received your mercy, who are uh, hardened and trapped in their disobedience, I pray that you would break through all that, give them this irrevocable gift of your mercy. For those of us who cannot uh, seem to get over guilt and remorse, 
for things that we've done or think that we've done, who are listening to the enemy, the accuser, point the finger and blame at us, or help us to claim your mercy and to stand strong and tall on top of it. I pray that this mercy would release us into a life of worship in everything we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, giving you glory. And Lord, I pray that you would enable us and mobilize us to offer this mercy to others, people who've wronged us, people who just don't deserve it. They don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve mercy. Help us to remember that's the whole point. Enable us to give it. In Jesus' name, amen.